Your call has been forwarded to an automated voice messaging system. Michael Easley. Is available. At the tone, please record your message. Hey, Dr. Eve, question for you. Does the Bible say anything about remarriage as a sin? Hi, Michael. My question concerns um, overall God's will as it relates to two diff- three different ways. Good morning. My question is in Matthew 8, uh, Jesus calming the storm. Hey, Dr. E. This is David. If I wanted to marry a Christian woman who was divorced because the marriage was physically abusive, would I be committing adultery just as Christ so clearly states in Matthew 5.32? Dr. E, this is Kathy from Augusta, Georgia. My question has to do with the body, soul, and spirit. Welcome back to Michael Easley in Context. I'm your co-host, Hannah Seymour. And today we have another installment of Ask Dr. E. You guys have been calling in, leaving some great voicemails. We also have some write-ins that have been coming in, and we'll have some voiceover actors and actresses read your questions. Uh, but we're excited to answer them. And, of course, I'm sitting here next to Michael Easley. How are you doing this morning, Dad? I'm doing good, young lady. How are yourself? I am great. I'm excited about some of these questions. You know, I am too. We've got some good stuff. I mean, some of these things are, I had to go back and do some homework. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. That's healthy for you. Yeah, well, it is healthy. Uh Uh-huh. Can't always shoot from the hip in life, you know. Sometimes you got to study. I get it. All right, well, let's jump right in. We have a really good question about the story where Jesus calms the storm and rebukes the disciples. Good morning. My question is in Matthew 8, uh, Jesus calming the storm. It's just a few verses, 23 to 27. And it says a furious storm came up, waves sweeping over. And Jesus rebukes them and says, you of little faith, why are you so afraid? Well, that isn't an exactly irrational fear. When there's a huge storm, they're used to being on the lake and, and the weather, so to be that afraid, it must have been an unusual storm. Scripture says furious. So why would he at this point, as early in his ministry, call them out of having little faith and to be afraid? Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. This is a great question, Hannah, and it's a good reminder that context is critical. So let's go back and frame the question she asked from Matthew chapter 8. In recent weeks... The disciples had seen Jesus do a number of things. He healed a leper immediately. Hmm. And that's a case study in and of itself because the the Jews and the Pharisees, they would not touch a leper. They wouldn't go near a leper. And there were all these laws and codes in Leviticus about how you define leprosy, what kind of leprosy. And they were typically ostracized. The healing of a leper immediately was a function of, okay, who's clean now? Right. Because you can't touch a leper and be unclean. Uh So it it was a lot going on in that little phrase. He healed a centurion servant at a distance. So now we've got these two parallels. We've got he healed this leper that was unclean. He heals a servant uh, away from him, and the report comes back, as you know. Then he heals Peter's mother-in-law, who had a fever, And then there was a long line in that same passage in chapter 8 of Matthew of all these people that were demon-possessed, that were oppressed. In fact, verse 16 says, and he healed all who were ill. All who were ill. Wow. So they've seen this litany of things that Christ has done. And now the passage that she notes is the hinge. The crowds are coming for a miracle. 
And Matthew 8, let me pick up the text in verse 18. Matthew 8, 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of his disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. When he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm of the sea, so that the boat was being covered with waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And this, of course, is where she picks up that they're terrified, they're afraid. Now, let's talk about this context being so critical. They've seen these miracles, they've witnessed these healings, and now Jesus is, the text calls it, discipleship tested. Are you willing to be my disciple? One of the first points I want to observe in verse 18 when he says, to go to the other side of the sea, Howard Hendricks said, he didn't tell his disciples, let's go drown. (laughs) (laughs) So before they get in the boat, he's already said, we're going on the other side of the Mm -hmm. Sea of Galilee. Mm -hmm. So one point before we look at this in a little more detail, some of these guys are proficient fishermen. Right. They know the Sea of Galilee. And when you go to Israel, if you haven't been there, you will see this is a lake, not an ocean. It's not a huge body of water. So when a storm would come up through the Valley of Doves, it could easily uh, engulf a ship. So this isn't like they're out in the middle of the ocean. So this storm is is terrifying. Uh, They're aware of what can happen out there. They're experienced fishermen. And I think part of what's going on in this text is, I'm going to take a nap in a boat. I'm with you. Do you trust me? Hmm. You followed me to go across the other side. These other people didn't. They wanted to bury their dead. They wanted to do this or that. Uh, I don't have a home to go to. Are you going to follow me? Hmm. And so the illustration is pretty poignant. All the healings, all the miracles, all the power. Now, get in the boat. We're going to go across the other side of the sea, and they're terrified. So to me, this test of discipleship is not just for those uh, in the larger crowd, but do you, as my disciples, trust me? And based on the few things that Matthew records, I would just sum it up to say, they had more than enough evidence to believe. He was, if nothing else, powerful. Mm -hmm. He's with them. And here's the application, just like you and me. We have to learn and relearn the same truths over and over again. Experiences, we know Christ is faithful, yet we worry. Mm -hmm. We know he comes through, yet we're concerned, we're anxious. Uh, we, we don't sleep. We have all these issues, but it's easy to tell someone else, you know, hey, you're anxious. Don't be. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. we're not anxious, right? Yeah. So I think what Christ is telling us in the bigger picture here is I have shown you more than enough evidence yeah. that I'm sufficient. Will you trust me? And don't miss. He's with them yeah. in the storm. Yeah. It's not as though he's, you know, absent from their problem. Yeah. That's really helpful to me because I think I kind of agree with this caller it's easy to jump in and go hey, it feels like jesus is being a little harsh on them you know but you're right putting that into the context and hearing all of the miracles all the ways he'd already proven himself i mean i'm sure we'd all still do the exact same thing if we were the ones in the boat yeah. oh totally <laughs> and I, I don't think it's unreasonable to think christ was hard on his disciples sometimes mm, yeah because there are times he rebukes peter 
There's times yeah. he corrects them. And I don't, you know, some of the depictions of Jesus being this meek and mild and really you know, Gandhi-esque kind of guy mm-hmm. is, is not accurate. Sometimes he was he was forceful. Sometimes he was compassionate. Yeah. Sometimes he was, you know, just blunt. So uh, we need to see the God-man with a, a better New Testament lens than just the way we want to think Jesus might have answered these kind of questions. But a great question. Thanks for calling in. Well, our next question comes from Ted. Hi, Michael. My question concerns um, overall God's will as it relates to two diff- three different ways, in sovereignty and uh, practical day-to-day living and then situational. And my question is really about the situational, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, we know in James 4, um, we're admonished uh, to, to not be too presumptuous with the Lord's will. Uh, you know, I'll, with Lord willing, I'll do this or I'll do that or go to this city or that city. Um, in Thessalonians, um, it's a stated will. You know, God's will is for us to be sanctified, for example. But then there's a situation where, which confuses me, uh, which is a situational example, um, specifically in 2 Samuel 5.19, when David inquires of, of an ephod to determine uh, whether he should go up against the Philistines. And that this particular scripture has confused me over time because I, I don't understand how this is different um, than some of the occult practices of the day, maybe even today, as well, in terms of inquiring using an object. Um, so I don't understand um, how he did it, um, why he did it, um, but practically speaking, um, what are the takeaways? Um, are there any takeaways for us now? Or, you know, should, should we take this as some type of a lesson of David, etc.? Well, there's a lot packed in your question, Ted. Let me try to tease out a few points. And I want to start with your last question about David. So in the Old Testament, God made a provision of what we call the Urim and the Dumim. And no one really knows how to pronounce these words. Uh, but they were in the pocket or a bag worn uh, by the high priest. If you go back to Exodus 28:30, Leviticus 8:8, 8, 8, Numbers 27:21, we have the explanation of the high priest, and he wore an ephod, and he had a a special uh, pouch or pocket on the front of his breast cloth, where the urim or urim and the thumim were kept. Now we don't know what these two items were exactly. We know they were used to cast, to throw a lot and it would yield an answer. We, on the simplest form, view them as a yes or no. So think of them like dice, a dreidel or something, and you toss them, and then they give you a yes or no answer. We don't know. Uh, some of the rabbinics have some fantastic ideas. Uh, one believes they had 24 letters of the Hebrew characters, like we have an alphabet, there's Hebrew characters, 24 characters on them, and they would actually illuminate to show the answer. That'd be pretty cool. Steven Spielberg, you know, you cast him out there. And it's like a, a Hebrew Ouija board. I would say way better than a Ouija board. Lights up, well, LED. We don't know. But the point was it was used to cast a lot to determine uh, what God, let's go back. God provided these to the high priest to use on specific occasions. So the two devices. Now, the linen ephod, there are ephods worn by priests and ephods worn by others. Uh, Samuel and David both wore a linen ephod. Think of a differentiation of, of you know, men wear a t-shirt, let's say. So this would be like a longer undergarment they would wear. It's very likely that we're not talking about David having a special ephod, but he's calling for the high priest 
and his ephod to come because that's where the lot was cast from, and that would be my leaning. In 1 Samuel 23, verse 9, it's the first time David calls for this. And if you read the text carefully, Abathar was the priest. So he's calling for Abathar to come and let's seek God's will. So I'm going to fill in the blanks. The ephod uh, held the Urim and the Thummim, and this is how David inquired of the Lord. That phrase is used throughout First and Second Samuel. David inquires of the Lord. David inquires of the Lord. And so we kind of connect the dots. The overall inquiring of God more than likely was using the Urim and the Thummim linked together with ephod. Now, notably, your question touches on this. Israel falls deeply into idolatry. And they're going to amalgamate graven images, whether it's from their Egyptian experience or the Canaanite cultures around them, the uh, Asherim, all sorts of things that are going to plague them. If we fast forward to Judges 17, verse 5, there's a man named Micah who has not only an ephod, he has a shrine, he has household idols, the text says that he made, which all those were in violation, and he even consecrates his own priest. Be nice to have a priest in your pocket. <laughs> he lives here. I got a shrine. I got an ephod. I got a priest. I wind him up. And what, what the implication is, I get the answer I want. Mm-hmm. Magic eight ball. Exactly. So during antiquity, when these are initially established, it God ordained them. Now they're mismanaged, misused, and they're, uh, they're idols. And like the ancients, we no longer need these tools. Uh, God had given them to the Hebrew priests for a specific time and specific manner. When they fall into misuse, they're also lost in Scripture. We have no idea what happened to any of the of the uh, ephod, the priestly garments. I'm sure they decomposed. That's interesting. That even like in all the archaeological findings, they've never been recovered. No. And and the likelihood of them being valuable stones, they would have been you know sold off and squandered at some sure. point. Now, my mind runs down a rabbit trail here. And I want to talk a little bit about putting a fleece before the Lord, because I've heard people uh, Mm -hmm. pray this. They've come to me and asked about, we want to lay a fleece before the Lord. And and not to be unkind, but this aggravates me. (laughs) (laughs) What else is new? (laughs) Well, the old man. So now now think about this. Gideon was told by God exactly what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. This wasn't go out and I'll show you a land. This is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And he, he didn't believe him. Yeah. Or he did, and he was anxious. And so I'm going to look upon this as God being merciful. And so he says, okay, it's going to be wet one day. It's going to be dry the next day. The fleece was not him asking, God, should I you know, go down and conquer these people? Should I go to war? Or in our vernacular, the way people use it today, should I marry so-and-so? Should I take this job? I'm right. going to lay a fleece before the Lord. No. That means you already know what God's doing. Mm-hmm. So th- th- that's just for free. <laughs> All right, let's go back to let's go back to Ted's question. Um, Doctor John Hanna made a great statement many many times. He wanted to write a book called "Misapplied Verses God Has Greatly Blessed." <laughs> yeah, love that. So whether it's the fleece or the way we make decisions in this greater question that Ted raises about knowing God's will. And is there a way to know for sure under his providence and sovereignty? I would say there's a very fine point between faith and presumption. Hmm. And the passage that you refer to in James is explaining that. Scripture is clear. We make plans. 
we design, we lead, we have vision, all these kind of things. But if it's not God's working, it's just our own labors. If it's God's plan, if it's God's design, if it's God's intent, then in a sense, we're putting our shoulder to the wheel. Mm-hmm. There was a book written, oh goodness, how many years ago, The Experiencing God. Did you ever yeah. get that? Yeah, I did like, in high school. Study? Uh-huh. Anyway, it's, it's a great book. Blackaby did it. And uh, there was a chart, a wheel on the back of it with the steps, you know, uh-huh. find out what God is doing, you know, all this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you, know, you know me, I always have to put margins in the notes. And I wrote on there, find out what God's doing and put your shoulder to the wheel. And I wrote, and then he lets us pretend we're pushing. Yeah, totally. <laughs> because I don't I don't think we have this attribute of I plan it, I implement it, God blesses it. Mm. I think he uses us in our thinking. We've got a brain, right? But that faith to presumption is a fine line. I don't want to presume God's going to do X, Y, and Z, but I want to have faith. Mm-hmm. Now, you begin referring to First Thessalonians 4, verse 4. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that's a summary illustration of sanctification. Said principally, God's will, be sanctified. What is sanctification but being set apart for God's use? So we ask ourselves in First Thess 4 and in the course of life, Lord, is my life being set apart to bring you glory and honor? The point of Thessalonians was their immorality was at odds with their sanctification. So in some, we might say, look, we don't have dice. We don't have the Urim and the Thummim. We don't have a Ouija board, please. We don't use a fleece. We don't need them. Mm -hmm. We live our life by faith, not by sight. The beauty of this is we have great freedom to make choices. You can marry this person or that person. You can have... One child, two children, four children, how many children you want. You can make a choice on how you use your money. If we're doing it by faith and we're walking in fellowship with Christ, we have great freedom and liberty and confidence to go out in faith. Now, when things don't work, we planned, we prayed, we were wise about it, and they don't work, then it comes back to, and this is where your mom and I, Cindy, and I have a difference of opinion one of many. Uh, <laughs> I look at, okay, we made a decision. It didn't work out. Okay, we turned the page. Yeah. We learned some things. And your mom would often say, well, if we hadn't have done C, we wouldn't have done D. Sure. And I think that's just how some of us view life and spirituality. I happen to think she's wrong. She happens to think <laughs> I'm wrong. We still love each other. But at some level, you're living by faith, not by presumption. And how you want to view the outcomes, you know, I, I don't think there's a right or wrong to that, candidly. Um, no matter how hard we work at finding God's will, don't miss that we walk by faith, we make good decisions, and then the consequences are what they are. Yeah. So let's say, you know, we made a plan and we made a decision and we find God's will, however you define that, and then it doesn't work out. Yeah. You have a number of options. You can say the Lord, like Cindy would say, taught me this through that experience. Or you can say what I might say. It was a bad decision, Michael. Yeah. You didn't get it right. Yeah. Make another decision. Right. So the outcomes, although we view them differently, are the same. How are we going to respond? 
something I've said many times is we need God's grace because we failed at the beginning, but we need God's mercy because we fail so often. Mm, mm-hmm. And that helps me in decision making and the will of God obsession and trying to figure out, you know, how is God sovereign? How do I make these decisions? You've got great freedom. Um, the, the, the best advice I've ever been given about God's will is just being faithful and enjoying the freedom he gives you. And as you and I go down the wrong path, we're going to find out pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> we're going down the wrong path. Right. And if it works out, bless God in spite of your decisions. Totally. I mean, don't don't take it like, hey, I made the right decision. Right. God right. bless me. You, boy, thank you, Lord, uh-huh. that even in my ambling through this life, uh, you're sovereign. I'm not. And in my situation, I like the outcome. Totally. But we don't know how those outcomes are affecting other people. Yeah. Even when they're bad outcomes. Right. So speaking of God's will and fleeces, there's this Kevin DeYoung book. I used to buy this book by the box. I mean, I literally buy like 20 at a time. And this was the book I gave to all my high school graduating seniors as they went off to college. Now, of course, I buy them my book, <laughs> obviously. Uh, but it's called, And that would be called... Uh, uh, the College Girl Survival college Guide. College Survival Guide. I would, okay. I would still buy them this book, and I would definitely buy the guys because I'm not going to give them a girl book. Um, but it's called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will, or... How to Make a Decision Without Dreams, Visions, Fleeces, Impressions, Open Doors, Random Bible Verses, Casting Lots, <laughs> Liver Shivers, Riding in the Sky, etc. I love it. Um, but, I mean, everything that you were saying, the, it's the tiniest book, such an easy read. Um, but I actually teach, I give a talk to high school seniors um, before they make their decision on college admissions and where they're going to go and the like bomb that I drop is God doesn't care where you go to college and but I use a lot of Kevin's book about God's will he describes it as a a two-sided coin there's God's will of decree and God's will of desire and so the decrees are like if you know God says it's going to be this way it's going to be this way but so much of God's will for us is desire the Thessalonians verse God's will for us is to abstain from sexual immorality well that's his desire for our lives Um, but Kevin DeYoung talks so much about we spend so much time fretting over and asking for the fleece about God's will of direction which is not you know biblically it's his decree and his desire. And anyway, it really helped me. And I think, um, I know my college students who've read it, it's really freed them from worrying about what college I go, who do I marry? What house do I buy? What, you know, do we get a dog? When do we start having kids? All these things. Um, well, it is not God's will for you to have a cat. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't heard that before. It, it's interesting That's in the book too. of Michael. Uh, yeah. Because, uh, going back through almost 40 years of church, uh, people that had these formulaic, this is how you find God's will. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it was almost A, then B, B, then C. And, yeah. oh, you didn't do that. And uh-huh. uh, on the other hand, you know, it's the old liberty, license, and legalism. Yep. That you've got great liberty, but that doesn't mean you can live licentiously and do whatever you want. If it's sin, obviously, that's not God's will. And then legalism is setting up this construct of it has to be, you know, do's and don'ts or it's wrong. And so the, the whole the notion of liberty is a fine balance. Again, faith and presumption to me is a helpful way to think of it. But yeah, that's a great totally. title. Kevin did a good job. <laughs> yeah, I love you that. You know, I book. gave Kevin his very first interview. Did you really? I did. I was at Moody, and he just published his first book. 
and he had a little, uh, he called it a mid-sized church, a little small oh, church he was pastoring. Crazy. And now he won't call me back. Yeah, well, <laughs> too big for you. Sorry. That's my story. <laughs> uh, s- speaking of God's will, a totally unplanned plug, you tell everyone it's God's will to go to Israel. Yes, it is. And you're going twice this year. Of course, those trips have been They're long booked, booked up They're for booked. a long time. In 2020, you are doing a first-time cruise tour experience. Yeah, this is a extravaganza. This is a Journeys of Paul trip, and uh, it's on a four-mast sailing vessel. We didn't script this. This isn't like a shameless no. plug. No, I mean, we, it is yeah, a shameless yeah. plug, well, but shameless. Unplanned. No, it's not shameless. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, if you go to the Michael in Context site, you can find a link there that will take you to our own little special website that yep. shows the details. May 28th. I'm on 2020. May 2020. Yeah, May 2020. And uh, it's about half full. It's going to fill up. It's a beautiful experience. It is a big master and commander kind of boat, not a cruise line. So a lot of people have a romantic thing about being on a four-mast sailboat in the Aegean Sea. Pray for calm waters. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, that still has room. And then 2021, we'll get some dates for Israel. Yeah. A funny quick anecdote. My OB had like to make sure that I wasn't going to be needing him to have a baby because he wants to go on that tour with you. Does he put his money down? I don't know. But I said, I I bless you. Go on that trip. You know, hopefully I'm not having a baby then. Okay, let's move on. So we have gotten this question in right in form multiple times. People also often come up to you after church or running into you and want to talk to you about this issue. So I chose two specific write-ins just because I felt like they were pretty thorough because they're write-ins, we asked some friends who would read them for us and do the voiceover. So if you are too shy to call in and leave a voicemail, you can email us at question at michaelincontext.com, and we will have one of our sweet voice actor friends <laughs> read your question. But, uh, or you could pay a teenager to call and leave a voice Totally, <laughs> totally. Your neighbor, whoever, whatever. But we will listen to both of those now. Hey, Dr. E. If I wanted to marry a Christian woman who was divorced because the marriage was physically abusive, would I be committing adultery just as Christ so clearly states in Matthew 5.32? Offhand, I think Christ's words are clear, and I think it makes sense to understand that the divorced woman is still connected to her husband. But I see such a different approach today, and I want to know if I'm missing some interpretation or if it's just become a simple compromise in the church today. I've been told a lot of it depends on me having to forgive her for sinning via divorce, but I'm concerned about myself committing adultery simply by marrying her. Thank you so much for your time. Hey, Dr. E, question for you. So I understand that 1 Corinthians 7 speaks to spouses who find themselves in a marriage with a spouse who's a non-believer. Does the Bible say that remarriage is a sin? Assuming that you're divorced and not that your spouse passed away. And especially if, say, your spouse is the one who wanted the divorce, filed for the divorce, so it's kind of out of your hands. Does the Bible say that you should never remarry? Curious on this one, being that divorce rate is so high among most people. I think it's about 50% um, and just affects a ton of people. Um, I also realize this is kind of a difficult question, can be a little thorny for some people, but figured you'd have some good thoughts on this one. Curious to know your answer. First of all, Hannah, this is a major topic, as anybody knows. And my answer in this Q&A obviously cannot be as detailed as I'd like, but I do want to go into some detail. Uh, Let me say, additionally, I have lamented 
studied, read, agonized on this issue of divorce and marriage for 40 plus years, even before I started as a pastor because I had college roommates that were getting married and divorced and, and trying to navigate, you know, how do you, how do you process this? Secondly, I don't want to in any way minimize the hurt, harm, trauma uh, that some have experienced through divorce. Uh, some of the stories that I've been involved with with people's lives, um, they're heartbreaking. And I'm not trying to minimize that or gloss over it. This is a traumatic issue in our culture. And so I want to season the answer with that. And then third, um, I don't want to minimize what Scripture says mm. about divorce, remarriage. So with those three kind of uh, qualifiers, let's jump into a couple things. Uh, one of the citations that we begin with is Deuteronomy 24, the so-called certificate of divorce. And let me just read Deuteronomy 24, the first four verses. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then the former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, let's frame this up. This is God's law to the Hebrew, to the Jew. This is God's intent for his 12 tribes and how they were to marry within Israel, within, we would say, Judaism, not to marry outside other cultures, other nationalities. So some of this is going to be a little tricky, and we're not going to go down all those trails in detail, but understand the context. Deuteronomy 24 mentions the certificate of divorce, and I'm not exaggerating that there are probably a thousand plus books written in the Christian label of divorce or remarriage. Sure. So this issue of what is the certificate of a divorce? On the obvious side, the statement, it's not condoning a divorce. This is not a legal document that condones either divorce or remarriage. It is a document that stated the husband found something wrong in his wife, and so he gives he issues this writ and sends her away. If she remarries and divorces that husband or that husband second husband dies, she may not come back to the first husband. Let's be very pedantic. That's what the certificate originally was intended for. If you get married, go through a divorce, she remarries, that husband divorces her or that husband dies, then that wife cannot go back to the first husband. That's the being very picky and technical about that certificate. It sounds very parsed, but I'm going to stick close to the text, not my feelings. Now, let's jump all the way to the New Testament. In Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, Jesus mentions the certificate. Let me read Matthew 19 and see Jesus' remarks. There's a context here. The Pharisees are trying to trip him. So keep that in mind. Let me read a few verses. Matthew 19, beginning at verse 3. Some Pharisees came to Jesus 
testing and asking him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he, Jesus, answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. They, being the Pharisees, they said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He, Jesus, said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. His disciples said to him, If the relationship of a man and his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept this. Now, all that, sorry, let's give some framework here. The first question is, did the certificate of the divorce serve as a certificate to remarry? Hmm. So back to Deuteronomy 24, contextually, he finds something wrong in his wife and his marriage, and we're not going to parse that. He sends her away. Was that a license to remarry? A good argument can be made for no. The document may have simply meant to send her home to her family of origin, more than likely, so it didn't disgrace her when she went back to her home. Now, let's take the other side of it. If the argument is made that the certificate of divorce de facto permitted a remarriage, then we have to acknowledge there are restrictions on those remarriages. So that's the framework. Now, what are the scribes and Pharisees after, and what is Jesus answering? If we take Jesus' remarks carefully, it's significant to me the religious leaders of Jesus' day are still divided about this. Yeah. When they try to set him up, it's a no-win scenario. Sure. And you can't trip up Jesus. We know that from the Gospels. But they're having this debate among themselves. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, no surprise, we're still having this debate in 2019 and counting. So they're testing him, but the fact remains divorce and remarriage were debated even in antiquity. Now Christ reminds them of God's plan, and this is the main part of Christ's message, is that to become one, let no man separate. That's foundational. That hasn't changed. So they ask him, why then did Moses command that they give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, when we read Jesus' answer to that, we run right away to the exception clause, that except for immorality. Right. Before we get there, listen to what he says. Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce. Now, that doesn't take a lot of exegesis or study. (laughs) Yeah. You were hard-hearted. It wasn't God's intent. Mm -hmm. And I love the way Jesus says it. Moses permitted. Yeah. You can see the exasperated Moses from the Exodus when all these people are lining up with their problems. And yeah. Jethro's father-in-law says, they're going to wear you out. 
you need to spread the spread the wealth around, so to speak. So you can see Moses dealing with this incalculable number of people that are coming to him, that their marriage is, you know, hard, their wife doesn't love them, whatever. God's intent was one man, one woman for life. Moses permitted them. Now, let's continue. The issue is still alive and well in the New Testament. Because by the time we come to Paul and one of the the write-ins asked about 1 Corinthians 7, which let me just summarize 1 Corinthians 7, that, that whole chapter is about remaining in the condition in which you're called. So hmm. if, if you go to, let's just say you heard Paul preach, you came to Christ, you went home, you're married to a non-believer, Paul says, look, you stay there. Yeah. Because you don't know if your influence is going to help that man or woman come to Christ. If they leave, you can't control that, but remain in the condition which you're called. That's the theme of 1 Corinthians 7. Hmm. So let's keep that in context before we, you know, over apply that passage. Now, let's, let's let me give you some these are Michael's opinions slash wisdom slash, you know, views on marriage and divorce. Number one, divorce nor remarriage are unforgivable. Mm-hmm. Again, depending on where you grew up, uh, the kind of church you're around, the kind of Christian friends you may or may not have, um, there are some some settings where there's really a hard line, no divorce nor remarriage. In principle, I understand that position. I completely do. Because let's just say you get a divorce, it would seem wise not to remarry. But let me add quickly, divorce nor remarriage are unforgivable. Secondly, the high standard for marriage cannot be overlooked. If we go back to the Bible as the whole, think about this. It begins with a marriage and ends with a marriage. Mm-hmm. You've got the, the marriage of Adam and Eve. You have the marriage of the Lamb of God to his church. In between those bookends of scripture are full of story, narrative, lessons, theology, all about marriage and family. The the fact that he chose the metaphor of Christ and his bride being the church and he he preparing his church without any spot. You know, we talked about this many times. The reason the bride wears white Mm -hmm. is not the Western cultural tradition for wedding dresses. It's a throwback to Ephesians and Revelation where Christ cleanses his bride to the point where there's not a spot or wrinkle or any stain on her wedding gown. And so the the bride's dress is depicting this as what Christ has done for his church. I also find it interesting in this high standard for marriage that this is the one covenant God asks man to keep. Mm -hmm. He saves us not on what we do. And he doesn't say, keep your salvation by doing X, Y, Z. Yeah. He doesn't ask you to, you know, uh, vow to raise your children in such and such a way. He doesn't ask you to vow to give a percentage of your money away. We have grace in all these areas. But when it comes to marriage, it's a covenant mm-hmm. he asks man to keep. Mm-hmm. I find that striking mm-hmm. at the high view of this high standard of what marriage is about. So reviewing, number one, divorce nor remarriage are unforgivable. Two, let's have a high standard of our opinion of marriage. Three, Reconciliation is always the hope. So if a couple is struggling, if they're having you know terrible time in their marriage and parenting, they're fighting, maybe one's a workaholic, maybe you know, one feels unloved, et cetera, et cetera, you, know, you need to get some help. And let's say you're separated. I know there's a whole culture of Christian counseling that believe in redemptive uh, separation, redemptive divorce. I have strong opinions on these things, but at the end of the day, 
waiting doesn't hurt. And if, if there's still an opportunity for that reconciliation, I would not completely dismiss it because if God's a God of resurrecting the dead, maybe he can resurrect a relationship. Now, at some point, when the spouse who's estranged, who leaves, who started the divorce, if they remarry, it's obvious there's no way to reconcile that marriage again. And that is in keeping with the principle of the certificate of divorce. Once that person's remarried, you cannot take that person back. Four, wisdom wins the day. Again, divorce nor remarriage are unforgivable. Secondly, there's a high standard a high view of marriage we need to keep in mind. Three, reconciliation is the hope. Four, wisdom wins the day. You know, I've seen so many marriages uh, that have gone south, they've gone divorced, they get remarried, and they have enormous struggles. I could tell you stories for hours about people that have come to me even after losing a spouse, after the death of a spouse. I remember one couple that came to me, uh, they both lost a spouses. They wanted to remarry. And I just, you know, I didn't know what I didn't know, but I just said, wisdom would say, wait a while, mm-hmm. wait a while. Well, they got remarried. That poor woman came back to my office with her head in her hands and crying like a schoolgirl, saying she wished she'd have never gotten remarried. Mm. It's Remarriage is not the solution to all our problems. Right. And, and you're bringing family systems and blended families and traditions and the use of money. Dating is not the same as being married and living with that person. So even those who remarry for, let's say, you know, right reasons are going to have challenges. Uh, secondly, under Wisdom Wins the Day, I've seen remarriages that fail. They've been in my office. They've argued with me. <laughs> they've tr- tried to get my permission. What, like, why do you need my permission? But they want my permission, and then they get remarried, and then it fails. And I don't run around going, I told you so, I told you so. But it's hard. Um, thirdly, under Wisdom Wins the Day, I've seen remarriages go through very difficult adjustments and work. Um, many of these have done well. It doesn't mean it's easy, and these couples are some of the, the quickest to, you know, when someone's going through trouble, saying, let us tell you our story. Mm-hmm. Because if you're hurt and you've been abandoned and maybe the woman's raising the children without help, maybe the husband isn't doing his share financially, all kinds of uh, common themes, uh, boy, just somebody who will help me. Yeah. And then you get this person, and now you got these adjustments to make. Those difficult adjustments can be, uh, you know, you can work through them, but it takes time. Fourth, under this idea of wisdom wins the day, the remarriages that work well, I've seen one consistent theme. Now, I'm not saying it's a universal theme. But I'm saying it's a consistent theme. And that's what I call the recognition of personal culpability. That even if the husband had the affair, the wife had the affair, whatever caused this thing to unravel, mm-hmm. uh, let, let's say I'm the, quote, innocent party. Can I recognize there's some level where I was culpable? If so, can I seek God's forgiveness for that? I'm not saying there's not an innocent party. I am saying more often than not, there is some culpability. And the healthiest remarriages that Cindy and I have seen are couples. And they've sat, you know some of these folks, Hannah, we've known them for 30 plus years, will say, we both, had we worked as hard at our first marriages, yeah. we'd have never gotten divorced. Yeah. Now, they have a healthy marriage. It's, it's sometimes over 30 years old. But they had to grapple with that. They had to grapple with their children. 
their uh, the step families, yeah. the the multiple blended families. I mean, you take four or five couples, none of them raise children the same way. Right. You add remarriage to this mix. Yeah. You're raising my son that way. My do- I don't let my son watch that thing. I don't let my daughter do those things. So the complexities of this become manifold. And that's where I keep coming back to wisdom wins the day. You want to be wise in this process. Um, one of my personal major cautions when a person is considering remarriage is is time. It just, you, you need to wait. You need to take time. Get wise counsel. And I kind of have, I wouldn't say it's a red flag, but it edges on there. If they've been divorced or remarried more than once, mm-hmm. I won't officiate the service. And I'm not judging jury. I'm not the perfect pastor or officiant. I'm not saying that. I've just seen so many multiples that don't work. Once they've been divorced once or twice, it just doesn't work. I had a couple of miles years ago. I was probably in my 30s. They had both been through multiple divorce remarriages. They had been married to each other at one point. And um, the wife came back into the husband's life, and it was a you know it was it was almost like two junior high kids the way they were dating mm-hmm. they were giddy they were holding each other's hands in my office to, we prayed and god led us together mm-hmm. and uh, i was probably in my mid-30s and I, I, I wasn't unkind but i said you know um i know what you're saying that you prayed and god led you together i'm going to tell you he didn't mm. i'm going to tell you you're in love with love mm-hmm. and you're lonely and you connect because you've got a history and that's not a reason to get remarried. Yeah. And I'll never forget the woman getting so mad at me. I said, look, I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. I officiate weddings. I don't make marriages. I'm telling you from wisdom, this is not a good thing. Mm-hmm. I don't mean to be unkind or mean. I'm you asking me. Right. Well, fast forward. They went down the street. Somebody married them. They came back to the church I was serving, which shocked me. I wouldn't have come back <laughs> if I was them. Yeah, Found a mean. new pastor yeah. that agrees with me. And uh, it lasted about 10 months. Wow. And she left. And I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet or a cousin to a prophet. <laughs> it's just wisdom. Yeah. This is just wisdom. And you know, so often we have these these flurries of loneliness and our life's going along and meet a person. This is going to solve a problem. Now, last thing I want to say about wisdom wins the day is when it comes to blended families. If, if you're blending a family, you need to have the courage to get some deep counseling mm-hmm. because um, no matter how well, I, I know a, a woman right now, she's got children from a prior marriage. She's dating a guy that's divorced and they're spending a lot of time together and these kids love this man. And so people are saying, wow, look how much those kids love that man. As an outside, uh, let's say, experienced, a little bit cynical person, of course they love that man mm. because he's giving them attention. Mm-hmm. He's taking them to the park. Mm-hmm. He plays with them the whole time they're together. Right. He's not the 24-7 dad. Right. And that will change Yeah. if and when they choose to remarry. Sure. I'm not saying you don't do it. I'm not saying it's wrong in every, in every case. I'm just saying use wisdom. Let's go back to the very first point in my little summary. Divorce nor remarriage are unforgivable. And each person's going to stand before God, not some pastor's opinion or somebody that said it was okay for me to get married. Um, you're going to stand before God. And, and I would encourage you, pray, 
If you've got any check in your spirit or heart or wondering, just ask him to forgive you. It's that simple. It really is that simple. But you will need some help to work through the remarriage, the realignment, uh, if you're blending families together, how to navigate that. The healthiest couples are those who can own their culpability and continue to grow and work on their marriage. That second marriage will not be any easier in many respects. It may be better. It may be two Christians. It may be healthier. But there will yet be challenges. Two sinners glued together, sleeping in the same bed, <laughs> you're going to have conflict. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's all I got to say about that. Well, let me press you <laughs> a little bit more. But our first write-in, I mean, I love this guy's you know, heart and what he's asking, but it sounds like he has not been married before, but he's dating a woman who has and is divorced and it was due to abuse in that marriage. And I mean, he's, his question is, his concern is, am I committing adultery simply by marrying her? Yeah. If I take the strictest understanding of those Old Testament passages, I have to say yes. That said, when we come to the New Testament and I see Christ responding to the questions of the day, He's saying it was because of the stubbornness of your heart Moses permitted this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to fall on permitted being mercy. Mm-hmm. Does that absolve consequence? No. Mm-hmm. Which is why I mentioned culpability. So let's say all things being equal, you know, I can't say yes or no, do this. I'm saying if a person proceeds with it and marries that person and they think, Lord, am I committing adultery? Simply ask God mm-hmm. for forgiveness mm-hmm. and more importantly how many couples are remarried without ever asking these questions yeah that's true haven't even put in the time yeah. and and i don't, I don't have any God. desire to make them feel guilty and ashamed and yeah. rub their nose in it god forgives me all the time right that's what i said earlier in one of our questions we need grace because we failed at the beginning we need mercy because we fail so often yeah every day yeah so th- we're not better because we haven't been divorced remarried that said Sin brings consequence. And let's just say, theoretically, without hurting people's feelings, let's say a remarriage was sinful. It was committing adultery, whatever. Uh, There will be consequences. God will forgive you if you seek his forgiveness. That may mean your marriage is going to have some complexity. Yeah. Well, welcome to the human race. Right. I mean, there are lots of marriages with complexities that. (laughs) <laughs> nothing to uh, do you, with divorce you and remarriage. You and Tyler have been married almost five, five years, years now. Yeah. Your mom and I almost are coming up on 40 here not too long. Yeah. Um, we still have trouble. Right. Uh, it's hard. And that, that's Jesus' comments. Because we're about, still sinners. It's hard. <laughs> exactly. We're still sinners. The only time your marriage is perfect is when you're dead. Yeah. <laughs> and then your sin conditions removed from that other person. So funny. And I think just to maybe qualify this a little bit especially for folks that don't know you personally i mean there are people that we know and love dearly and we are so grateful that they're married we love their marriage that have been in these exact situations i mean a remarriage an abusive situation before i mean so you know you're not answering Uh, this from a place where where you don't know people in these exact situations and we're grateful for those marriages today and pray God's blessing on them today. Oh, your you mom know, and so. I've got some long, long friendships that have been divorced and married. And some of our closest, you know, friends, when you guys were little, especially, we traveled with this one family, love them to death, so proud of what they've done in their marriage. And they've been through all kinds of trouble. Yeah. And, and, and they're yeah. helping other marriages exactly. today. I mean, yeah. Exactly. So that's what, uh, go back to it. It's not unforgivable. But I do think the recognition, one, one of um, the, uh, it was a family back in Virginia. She had three sons, 
and uh, we had this Mother's Day tribute. And I'll never forget one of the sons got up, and he, he had this comment. He said, Mom taught me that if you have to think about something twice, your conscience is probably telling you don't do it. Interesting. Not a bad wisdom principle. And I thought, you know, when it comes to marriage, if there's that check or that, you know, give it time. Mm. Give it time. And over time. And then once you've gone down the road and you're remarried, find people who can help you, who can walk with you in life, who've been there, done that, mm-hmm. who've grown. And again, the ones that in this couple in particular we're thinking about, um, they were some of the first your mom and I met that were like, look, we, we messed up in our first marriages. Mm-hmm. We were we were terrible mm-hmm. in our first marriages. And then I have, we have some that were, you know, I don't say there's an innocent party because we're sinners, but as much as you could be, I have a friend, I would say she's an innocent party. Yeah. She did nothing wrong. He was the one that, you know, ran off and did his thing and left her. Um, and it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And so then how do you say to that person, you can never remarry ever. Right. Unless your husband dies or gets remarried. Right. Um, I don't want to play that role. That to me is you need wise counsel. You need before you and the Lord. And then as you proceed, and if you remarry, Go for it with courage, with with help, with maturity, knowing it's going to be tough. But again, God's merciful uh, when we make good and bad decisions. Yeah. Well, our last question is from Kathy in Augusta, Georgia. And I'm really fascinated to hear your thoughts on this. Dr. E, this is Kathy from Augusta, Georgia. I've actually met you before and have children um, in the Nashville, Tennessee area My question has to do with the body, soul, and spirit. I am realizing that there is confusion on my part on differentiating between the soul and the spirit. I think that I have been believing and and realizing that the soul is the real me, the soul that's made up of mind, will, emotions, and conscience. I just completed a Bible study under um, a Bible teacher who's fairly well-known. And in her study, the quote is, the spirit is the core and inmost essence of a person. But then she does have a note at the bottom of the page that scholars maintain varying views as to the delineation between spirit and soul. So this leaves me confused. Where is the real me? Is it in the soul or is it the spirit or is it a combination of the two? I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Thank you. This is a great question, Kathy. It's interesting. You know, in seminary, we had these deep debates on whether man was tripartite or trichotomous, it's called, or bipartite or dichotomous. Okay. Doesn't that get you excited? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So body, soul, spirit. Or body and soul. Okay. And then there's some, you know, as she asked in her question, soul and spirit, can you differentiate right. between those? Yeah. All right. Let's 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 begin this way. Most theologians, and I say most, that sounds like I've read all of them. Let's just say the preponderance of evangelical, fundamental, reform, Bible-believing type theologians would hold to a, a bipartite or a dichotomous view of body and soul. Now, there's a few verses that raise the question, is man tripartite? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit 
and soul and body three, right? Tripartite. Mm -hmm. Your spirit and soul and body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Now compare that with Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, Mm -hmm. sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. Okay. Both joint and marrow, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So there, although soul and spirit aren't used synonymously, it would argue for by, just a dual part. And then James 2.26 reads, body without the spirit is dead. Mm-hmm. So we're in a dichotomous view. Second mm-hmm. Corinthians seven one reads, cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. So again, it's dichotomous. And then Christ's words in Matthew 10, 28 to me are helpful. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So let's back up a little bit at a big picture. Throughout the Bible, man has a mind. He has a conscience. He has a heart. We read about soul. We read about spirit. So when we try to parse these two things, or cut them too thin, we can get in trouble. Uh, Dr. Tom Constable has a great comment on the First Thessalonians 5 passage. I just want to read a little bit of what he has offered because I think he sums it up super well. The spirit is the highest and most unique part of man that enables him to communicate with God. The soul is the part of man that makes him conscious of himself the seat of his personality the body of course is the physical part through which the inner person expresses himself and by which he is immediately recognized paul was saying that he desired the thessalonians would be kept blameless by god in their relationship with him in their inner personal lives and in their social contacts with other people. So instead of just going, is it, is it tripartite, bipartite, trying to define it so specifically, Dr. Constable gives us a great overview of the soul as the part that makes him conscious of himself, the spirit, the part that communicates with God, the body, of course, we would just say is our, is our physicality. So I look at Hannah and know who she is. She looks at me and knows who I am, so forth and so on. So let me sum it up. Well, I can't be bulldogmatic. Uh, I think the distinction seems that soul and spirit are used somewhat interchangeably depending on the author's purpose. But if you want to hold the three-part versus two-part, I ain't going to lose any sleep over it whatsoever. (laughs) Well, that's the final word from Dr. E. If you've got a question, call us 615-282-9694 or you can write in question at michaelincontext.com. Both of those will be in the show notes wherever you're listening. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Cates and Blair Masters.